comes above the den It's hard to know Welcome to episode 388 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. From Las Vegas, Nevada, but no longer from the Rio? No, I am. I am at the Rio. You are at the Rio. For how much longer? Nine days. And I'm happy and also sad about that. Uh, happy in the sense that I will be leaving the Rio headed east um, to go see family for the holidays. But sad about this might be my last time in the Rio because when I come back west, it will be 2023. And I think that's the, the year when um, Caesars um, deal with the new buyer who I think is going to be like Hyatt or somebody like this place is going to become a Hyatt so I don't know if I'll be able to come back to the Rio um, next year so that makes me a little sad because you won't be able to use your like Caesar rewards hookup anymore uh, no I'll still be able to use it but I mean other, not at the Rio not at the Rio I'm sad because this room is like three times bigger than every <laughs> other room uh, just the history of uh, you know the uh, WSOP being here and um, these great rates, man. I'm not going to be able to get $15 rooms anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about this a bit on our uh, our 10th anniversary episode when we had Nate on here as well. But uh, I mean, I have that. To, I'm like nostalgic on your behalf, I guess, on my own behalf as well for, for the Rio. But basically, like my entire, po I mean, it was only 10 years or so or 15 years, I guess, that that the WSOP was taking place at the Rio. But it happened to overlap perfectly with my 15 years <laughs> of, of playing the main event. Um, and, and, you know, it's a lot of the history of like this show and, uh, you know, my uh, actual times that I've spent physically in the same place with, with you and with Nate, like a disproportionate amount of that has uh, has taken place at the Rio. You know, we, we've spoken plenty over uh, Skype and Zoom and whatnot, but in terms of actually being in the same place at the same time, the Rio is a huge chunk of that. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be... Um... It's gonna be sad to um, not be able to come here anymore because I know I know the the, the rates that Hyatt will have are gonna be ridiculous. It's probably <laughs> two hundred dollars a night on a Monday, <laughs> so I'll never be back in this building for the rest of my life. <laughs> but um, you know, um, maybe the flamingo will welcome me. Um, <laughs> Might might cost me thirty dollars a night, but that's still better than um, having to pay whatever the hell people are paying for rent these days. <laughs> well, speaking of WSAP, you've been playing some of these online bracelet events. Yeah, yeah. So the online bracelet events have been going on on WSOP.com since I believe the middle of September. Um, so about a month in playing those and they actually started with a uh, some circuit events in August and then more of those in September as well. 
Um, so it's been a grind, man. It's just been pretty much nonstop since August. Like, if not every day, every other day playing some high bit high buy-in event with killers and um it's not something I'm used to and I'm getting sick of it. <laughs> so I'm ready for it to be over. Um I've luckily I've had some success so far. So we um briefly mentioned this on some previous episodes, but um I actually forgot about one of them because it was so long ago in August. But uh I got fourth in a circuit event and so I got fourth in a circuit event in August, and then a month later, I won a circuit event. So I got my first ring in September, and then two days after that, I got fifth in a bracelet event, which was a big buy-in also, which was nice as a 1K, which is generally um, around what I play. So yeah, yeah, just having survived this onslaught of um, high buy-in <laughs> tournaments was nice because my plan coming in, like when August started and I saw all these events on the schedule, I was just calculating in my mind. I was like, there's a good chance I'm about to lose twenty to $30,000 <laughs> in the next two, two or three months. And I was like, are you prepared for that? And I was like, <laughs> it is what it is. Um and luckily, I had enough cashes where even if everything else goes wrong for the rest of the series, I should uh, come out with a small profit or at least break even. You could probably pawn that ring for a couple hundred as well. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's a uh, uh, worst case scenario. That's what I'll do uh, after the nuke drops if I have to, like, <laughs> you know, melt it down and sell it for uh, gold and then... And, and, get some rice with it or something. <laughs> Otherwise my mom will have it. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, I played a few saddies to some of the, um, some of the events and I was able to win a saddie into a, um, $2,500, um, online event, which was the biggest event I've ever played, um, without selling action. And, um, it was interesting. It wasn't, I mean, here's the problem with the site, man. Like once you get deep in these, all of these are relatively tough. So I can't say this 2,500 was tougher than like the one K's, even some of the five um, hundreds I've been playing um, at least once you get deep and I'm almost always deep. Cause I tend to late reg these things. Uh, but I did go deep in that event. Um, did not cash it, but I think I'm mostly getting cooler, uh, which is fine. Like that's kind of what I want to happen. If I'm be honest with myself, it's like, if I'm having to play against better players and I can bust in a cooler, that's a win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that 2,500, I actually played against Helmet for the first time. Um, which is funny because over the past year or so, I played like a ton of WSOP events and, He's been in probably a good number of the events I played, but I've never run into him. Uh, Negranu, I've run into him multiple times and um, several other big name players, but finally got in there with Helmut. And, you know, after about a couple of two or three orbits, I gave him the nit tag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's pretty funny because uh, most of my opponents get, have given me the nit tag. So he was playing <laughs> even tighter than I was. Um, we played one little um, hand together. Wasn't too much action in it. Um, so it's probably not even worth talking about in detail. 
but um, he ended up winning the hand. So he's one one and zero oh, um, against me <laughs> lifetime. I'll, I'll get my revenge one day. <laughs> I know I've quoted this on the show before, but I think about this often just because it's one of the like earliest pieces of poker advice that I got that's stuck with me. And um, this is when I was like getting ready to play the main event for the very first time. And I was still, you know, I was not a professional player. I was, I was making money at it, but I was not thinking of it as like, this is how I'm going to, this is what I'm still going to be doing 15 years later. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was very nervous. I mean, I was not, uh, maybe, I mean, maybe because everyone was so bad at the time, maybe I was WSCP main event caliber, but I didn't think of myself in, in those terms. Um, and I was very, I, I just kind of won a satellite on a freak thing. And, and um, suddenly I was going to be playing the main event and someone who was like slightly more experienced at poker than I was, but still like fairly amateurish. I, I was voicing these concerns about, you know, what if I run into, uh, uh, you know, still Negreanu and Helmuth with, with the big names at that time, um, you know, and, and they're on my left and I have Queens and they three bet me just like that sort of scenario of like what, it, and the, what the person said to me was, um, you know, they're just getting dealt two cards out of the deck, same as you are. And I think it's even easier online to get that sense of like, this is just like another flashing name on there. <laughs> they get to click <laughs> call or raise or fold, you know, I mean, they, they can make those decisions a little bit better than you can or whatever, but it's, you know, they're not, um, they're not magicians, right? despite all the talk of white magic, uh, they're still, they have limited options and like the right play is mostly going to be the right play against them no matter what. And I mean, certainly you can imagine some of the scenarios where you're like, you could end up in a tough spot that you wouldn't against someone else, but 95% of the time, the decision you make against them is going to be the same as the decision that you'd make against anybody else. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. And, and honestly, I would say some of the bigger names um in the game aren't the ones i'm most worried about running into on these in these like they're not the toughest turn the toughest right. players in these tournaments so it's um not fun no, um, I, I can't pronounce the names of the players who are the toughest <laughs> players in these tournaments well actually you can because those players aren't allowed to play on this site uh, yeah i guess on, on the gg uh, yeah WSF, yeah, I, think that yeah. Is, yeah. I actually consider I actually consider uh heading down to Mexico to play on those, but I was like, that's stupid. I was <laughs> like, yeah, I don't want to play against names I can't pronounce because they would be <laughs> even tougher than these guys, and I can at least say their names. Um, yeah, yeah. I um I I it's fun being a recreational player for a change. Uh, cause that's kind of how I feel when I play in these um environments and it in a way is kind of free in that I don't have to um I don't have to try to crush the table because I know that's probably not gonna happen anyway. All I need to do is just hold my own, get my caches and hopefully get lucky and get a final table and or ring or bracelet. And you know, luckily that's happened, but I'm not going into these events thinking that, you know, I'm going to be like a, you know, top five player in this tournament. And, you know, it's, I'm going to be disappointed if I don't win a bracelet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, to having that pressure off it, I'm thinking like, you know, cash would be nice. Um, but I just don't want to lose uh, making a mistake. If I get cooler, that's almost the goal. Almost yeah. the goal. 
I feel that no matter who I'm playing against, I mean, I, I've said this before about the main event as well. I feel damn near every year anyway, when I've you know, played the main event, um, there's been a, a big loss, either the hand that I went out on, or at least the hand that caused me to lose a lot of chips. And then I got eliminated shortly thereafter, where it's at least questionable. And in some cases, I think unimpeachably in retrospect, I should have done something different. Uh, and it is like, it's extremely frustrating, right? I mean, I can, how many chances do you get to make mistakes that are, you know, maybe have six figures <laughs> attached to them? Um, and, and so, you know, just when, when there is nothing to blame yourself for, and it's sort of like, well, you know, no one in the world could have played that better than I did. Uh, there's, there's something very freeing about that. Yeah. Yeah. That, and also, uh, no, maybe that's the same thing. That's the same thing. I, I guess I should make this distinction for some of my students who I kind of feel like putting myself back in their shoes, uh, a couple of years ago, like when you say the word cooler to Carlos from like, you know, 2014, uh, that's like Ace versus Kings. But like, I don't even think about those as coolers anymore. Like, like they're coolers, but like spots where a guy is supposed to like, you know, jam Ace Deuce off for 20 bigs and you're supposed to make a thin call because he knows he's jam he's supposed to jam correctly. Like some of these jams and calls that I would never make in software games, I'm kind of starting to realize those are coolers also. Okay, so here's a good example. The the one I busted, I, maybe this isn't that good. Maybe this is just a straight <laughs> up cooler. But this this tells you how how much of a nit I used to be. And you know that because you reviewed that tournament where I won the um, Bavada Major that year. And I was just making some god-awful foals. <laughs> but in the bracelet event that I final table, um, my bust-out hand was me opening button or cutoff. I can't even remember what it was. With like ace-queen and big blind three bet and i like four bet jab um which is obviously a cooler but a couple of years ago i would have viewed that as a punt and, and honestly it would be a punt against a lot of players because we always say people don't three bet wide enough from the big blind but not this guy and not most of the people at that final table um so you gotta change the uh, way you view the word cooler because ace queen there was like way high up in my range like maybe i'm supposed to jam like i don't know a seven suited there and uh, for a lot of people that wouldn't be a cooler but you know if it's a jam it's a jam yeah i wrote a thing for um i guess it must have been for two plus two magazine a couple of years ago about how kind of what it what it means for someone to be a better player is that more things are coolers against them right there's just there's there's fewer opportunities to avoid losing your chips in certain situations where it's just like you just you have to do you have to put money in in more situations against better players there's not the same opportunities to say like oh they they obviously have this and so i can make some some huge fold or heroic check or, or whatever else just like the, the when, when two very good players are, are playing against each other like the number of scenarios where a lot of money is going to change hands just as a result like the, essentially the the your destiny is written from the moment those cards are dealt. It's not a matter of someone's going to be outplaying someone else. It's just like, well, like you said, this one person could taste deuce and someone else gets queens and it's all going in. And that's like, uh, and I think, I mean, the, the end state of that is, is like solver playing against solver where it's like literally every outcome is, is preordained and there's no, uh, there's no like outplaying or anything. And then, you know, when two very good players are playing against each other, that's, um, 
you know, pretty close to just two solvers playing against each other. Or it's the same. Um, that that's like sort of the the end that we're uh, reaching towards. Yeah, yeah. I, I busted. It, it's so sick. It's so sick that you have to think this way when you play against good players, man. But I had like a decent stack on the bubble of a fifteen hundred um, uh, bracelet events last night, and. So it wasn't quite the bubble. 48 pay. This is the other thing that's so tilting. 48 pay and 65 left. But because these players are relatively good, it takes like three hours <laughs> to lose those like, you know, uh, 17 people or whatever we need to buzz. So I got to view what even counts as the bubble differently than I do in software games where people are just like, I see them putting left and right. Mm-hmm. So... 17 off the money, which is an eternity. And I have Queen Jack suited. And the details how we get to the river don't really matter, but I basically get to the river with, I hit a flush on the river. I bet big and the guy jams on me. And I got Queen Jack. uh, So I got a Queen hot flush. And against a lot of people I play against, I honestly would just fold there. Mm -hmm. But these guys can like turn the ace of clubs into bluffs and spots and stuff that pe- people who I play against on ignition just aren't capable of that. So, um, like this hand probably feels like a cooler, um, to most people all the time. But I would say on this site against this opponent, it kind of was a cooler because he has bluff, he have he has bluffs here. But if I'm playing on Bavada and I'm up against some passive player, this isn't a cooler. This will be a punt to call off with the third nuts. Honestly, even if I had the second nuts, it would be a punt to call off. So just thinking about like using those terms, cooler and punt, using those terms relatively, as opposed to just like looking at the hand chart and deciding what's a cooler or a punt. Like that, that's a mental shift I've had to make planning these tough for games. Yeah. And it's something, I mean, I noticed this a lot in coaching or even people write in hands to the show or whatever. Um, how, I mean, I guess it's just like results oriented, but how many people, how many things people label punt when they lose, you know, they're like, Oh, I, I punt it. And, and I guess there's the idea, especially in, in tournaments where it's like, you're, you get deep and obviously there's a lot of luck involved in, in getting deep, but it's easy to overlook that and to think like, Oh, I've been playing really good poker and I'm on pace. Like if things keep going the way they've been going, I'm going to win this tournament. And the only thing that could go wrong is if I somehow blow it. And um, <laughs> that's not how it works. Right. I mean, like a, it, it has, it, it's not, I mean, obviously hopefully you've been playing well to get to where you were, but that's not the only reason you got to where you are. Like, and, and part of playing well was taking appropriate risks and you have like to, in order to sort of keep on keeping on that means you have to keep taking those same risks and it's entirely possible that your luck is going to run out in fact if there are 20 people remaining in the tournament like 19 of those people's luck is going to run out before they win and odds are you're going to be one of them because you know <laughs> more people will than, than won't be one of them so it's not a matter of like oh I, I blew it everything was going well and then you know I, I went all in with king queen and I blew it or I went all in with ace queen and I blew it whatever you know it's not um, it, maybe it was I don't know depend on, on the details but i think sometimes there's just a sense of th- that it was within your control and 
that, that you could have prevented that outcome, you know, that, that it's all within your control. And I think that th there is a tendency to think that way, especially when things have been going well in, in a tournament, it feels very easy, right? It was like when everything's going your way, you're like, oh, this game is easy. You're just like, you know, you raise with your aces and someone else shoves kings and, you, and, you know, why would you ever take a risk? The, the chips are so easy to get, like... Yeah, it definitely feels that way sometimes if you are table selected well. But at the end of the day, it's not that easy. In fact, I just uh, met with uh, my buddy Craig recently, and we were having this discussion because he's been on a bit of a downswing lately. And, um, you know, I was basically just telling him that it's almost like the the natural state of a tournament player is to be on the downswing. Yeah. Like 99% of the time you're, you're going to be on the downswing. And it's like, if you really want to think about it down to like the extremes, if you didn't win the last tournament you play, or if you didn't cash the last tournament you play, you're on the downswing. And the trick is to understand that if you're currently losing money, that's supposed to be what's happening. And your job is to not make it worse so that when you get that, you know, uh, miracle run good where you actually win the tournament, that that win is enough to cover the losses. And so the, the idea that good tournament players are supposed to be to, to good tournament players aren't supposed to be on the downswing. No, I think every tournament player on the planet is always on the downswing. It, unless they cash the last tournament they're playing. Yeah, I think even that idea of what it means to be like on a downswing, I think this is maybe a, a Tommy Angelo thing of you know swings or, or trends or any of those things, running hot, running, running bad, cooler seaters, all that stuff only exists in the past, right? You can you can look back over your your last month, two months, year, whatever, and say like I've been on a downswing. I have lost uh, maybe at a higher clip than I theoretically should over the last X months or whatever. But none of that's predictive of of the future. You're never in a downswing, right? You you can look back and say you're on a downswing. You have no idea what's going to happen in in the next event that you play. And I I think you have to believe that. And I know it's hard to believe that because I mean I guess it's not literally true that you have no idea. If you're playing a tournament, you know you probably aren't going to win that that tournament, but you have to believe that it's possible. Like you have to believe it's possible to win a tournament. You have to believe it's possible to win a coin flip. Like once you start getting in your head of like, I'm cursed. And I really push back against this when you're know, like students, it's hard to draw the line as a coach. Cause I know people want to like vent sometimes and just, they're, they're just sort of like, oh, I obviously I know like there's luck involved. I'm just trying to say like, when I say I'm cursed, you don't have to like tell me I'm wrong about that. I know I'm wrong about that. I'm just like <laughs> venting. And like, part of me is sympathetic to that, but part of me is like, I think it's really damaging to say that out loud and like i think there is a part of you that that does sort of take that seriously and it's a really dangerous thing to take seriously because once you start believing that that good things aren't going to happen or like that you're not going to get your share of of luck or that, that you run uniquely bad or something then you stop taking the right risks and you start thinking oh you know i'm not going to take a flip because i'm probably just going to lose it or i'm not going to bluff because he's probably just going to call me it, it's really dangerous to have that idea in your head even as a joke i think yeah like the the danger of of feeling that because you've been losing you're going to continue to lose and therefore you're going to start playing differently to try to prevent it. To me, that that is dangerous. And I hear what you're saying there. But I think if you don't view it 
as such of an extreme, it can be healthy. And I'll tell you the analogy I use because I kind of come at the other, come at this question from the other side than you. I think about a boxer. If you're a boxer, and even if you're the best, maybe I've used this analogy on the podcast before, but like, you have, but I like it. Okay. So Floyd Mayweather is the best defensive boxer of all time. Most people would say that. And he doesn't go to work and get punched and say, ouch, I went to work and somebody hit me. Like, it's supposed to happen. He knows it's supposed to happen. It's normal for him. But it's not like he's going to lose his mind now and completely change his game plan and stop doing the things he's supposed to do just because something negative happened. So this whole idea of feeling cursed and expecting negative things to happen can be bad if you take it to an extreme. But if you expect it because negative things are going to happen, like you're not like to me is like checking for monsters on the bed isn't a bad idea if monsters are actually under there. It's like when I when Floyd Mayweather goes to box, he knows he's going to get punched. I know the next tournament I play, I'm probably not going to win it. I'm probably not even going to cash it. So expecting it and being okay with it, I think is healthy. But the being okay with it part is important to make sure that you don't let it change your play because you shouldn't be keeping score based on results anyway. You should be keeping score based on quality of your decisions. So if you're doing that and expecting the negative things enough to know that mathematically they're going to happen more often than not, but that's okay, that's what the job is, I think that's very healthy. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I wonder, um, I have the sense, obviously, I don't follow boxing nearly as closely as, as you do, but I think this is kind of a thing, right? Where like, the, the, there's a thing that can happen to a boxer where they do, they start to get afraid of getting hit, or maybe when when they're boxing a particular person, they're afraid of getting hit. And that strikes me as, you know, something that would be a pretty big problem <laughs> if you were, you're, you're, you're not willing to, to take the hits that, you know, maybe you should take. Exactly. And that's a good analogy for the risk you were talking about earlier, because it's like I can remember if Alex hears this, he's going to be so disappointed because he's a bigger boxing fan than I am. But I want to say Manny Pacquiao was fighting. I'm not going to remember this guy's name. I think it's like Potty or something like that. But Manny Pacquiao is so fast and he's so able to hit hit you like almost at will that this guy wouldn't remove, he wouldn't throw punches Mm -hmm. because he just, he knew the moment he threw one punch, he would get hit three times before he could pull his hand back to defend himself. So he basically just put his hand up the whole time and he didn't get knocked out, but he lost because Manny was like, you know, basically punching his arms and the other guy wouldn't move his arms to try to punch back. So he, he ended up losing on points. But in his mind, at least he didn't get knocked out. And I think that's kind of an, a, a good analogy for what you're talking about, is that this guy didn't take the necessary risk in order to give himself a shot at, at winning because he was so fr- afraid of the negative things that he should be willing to accept given the game that he was playing. 
Yeah. And I imagine this is part like when the um when the MMA people do like the way and I guess boxers do this too, where they sort of like get up in each other's faces and kind of like threaten each other or say I mean, I know some of that like for for show or or the spectacle for for the cameras, but I'm sure there's an element of trying to like psych the other person out as well or be like, No, I'm actually gonna hurt you if you give me the chance. Like <laughs> <laughs> like th- this fighting me could be a career ender if, if if you make a mistake against me it's all over baby like that that it's like trying to plant that in your opponent's head seems like a very useful thing yeah 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 that was uh mike tyson's whole big thing in the in the 90s it was like he would beat people before the fight even started just based on fear mm-hmm. and a lot of times we even do that as poker players, like, you know, depending on who we're up against, we kind of, we kind of do that. And honestly, I do that probably more often than I should. Um, I think for me, I kind of feel that way when like in these bracelet events, when I know that there's so many better players at the table than me and I don't take, like the the standard stuff or the stuff that feels standard to me, I'm more willing to do, but I don't, I don't do some of my exploits that I would uh, because I don't feel capable of exploiting better players. And that might be fine or like, I don't know, but there's definitely times where I could like go to war with a guy and I decide, nah, I'm just going to take the cash. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. If I'm, if I'm truly up against a better player, but at least I'm not, you know, four days queen in that example I gave earlier, like I would have did in, in 2014. Maybe. Okay. So early, earlier I said, uh, I actually looked this up. So this was like 30 bigs button versus uh, a big blind three bet. And I jammed the ace queen suited. And I was right. That's pretty high up in my range. You can go with ace 10 there. And I also like ace five suited, ace deuce suited, um, uh, queen jack suited. Most of those I would go with. I guess it's not that bad. I don't see too many things on this list. I would just be terrified to jam in this spot. But I've definitely seen some charts that have some hands that I would not want to jam, even though I know it's the right thing to do. And maybe I will shave off the bottom of my ranges against a better player, knowing that that's going to limit my profitability in the tournament, but make it more likely that I at least cash. So I still have a little bit, a little bit of that in me, but definitely not as much as I used to. There's a, um, I got this actually from kill everyone the which is actually sort of an early book about using game theory and poker although it's not quite presented that way i think that's what it is um and and they make this point i maybe it's a joke that's known outside of this but i wasn't familiar with it sort of like what's the optimal strategy in um the game chicken you know like two people are driving cars towards one another and and neither wants to be the first one to swerve but like it's certainly bad for both of you if you collide so the the idea is like who's going to swerve first and their answer to that question is like let the other person see you throw your steering wheel out the window so like they know that you couldn't possibly swerve (laughs) even if you wanted to and i mean they're using that as like that's what's going all in is where it's like it's bad for both of us if we get all in against one another in an icm situation and so like if i just go all in well now i can't swerve it's too late for me so like you're the one who has has to move and that is a powerful concept but i think there's also like to the point about it kind of being being afraid to get hit or like psyching out your opponent and giving that idea of like i'm crazy man I'll, I'll do it um i think that there is like having that that 
I mean, you don't actually want to take the wrong risks, but if you're in a, like a, an ICM situation, like maybe the two big stacks at a uh, on the bubble or at a final table or something like that, um, if you can convince your opponent without actually taking bad risks, if you can convince them, and I'm I'm no good at this, but if you can convince them, like, hey, I'm just here to gamble. I don't care about doing well. Like, I'm ready to play a big pot anytime. It's all about ego for me. Like, if you can convince this, convince them that that's true, then like that is actually plus EV for you because then they'll they'll like preemptively back down against you. In, in situations where just like, you know, like even to, to prevent short stacks from shoving on you, if you're just like, I'm just trying to bust people. I don't even care about maintaining this big stack. I'm like, if you shove on me, I'm going to call you. Uh, and I think there are some, some people who have some like you know, pros, this is more like an old school pro sort of thing to tell people like, if you shove, I'm going to call just out of spite. So <laughs> just to like <laughs> discourage people from, from making what would otherwise be plus EV shoves on them because like, it's not plus EV. Like if essentially what you're saying is I'm willing to torch my own prospects in the tournament in order to also torch yours. If you can convince your opponents that that's true, that's a powerful thing. Yeah, it's a pretty sick future gameplay because you might lose a little bit of money in this hand. But if you get that guy to shell up against you in the future, you're going to more to make up for it going forward. Well, people talk about doing that on um, like if, if you're on a a thing you know we're we're playing cards up on on camera making like advertising plays that might be useful for future uh or i mean people used to, used to talk about this on two plus two also about like making advertising posts where you sort of post like a big call that, that you made or or claim to have made or something or a big bluff or something knowing that a lot of your uh of future opponents will be reading that post and will think like oh that guy's crazy he'll call with anything um and, and it might be worth either inventing a hand to post on on two plus two or <laughs> actually playing a hand like at a smaller stakes thing or when you know that you're a lot of people are going to be watching you on camera so that you'll have this this reputation of being wild and then you can capitalize on that in, in future situations where the stakes are actually higher than whatever you risked in that particular instance yeah, I've heard of that also. I think it's interesting. Uh, I kind of take the opposite approach where I rather play pretty tight in general, knowing that allows me to get out of line when I really need to. Uh, and if you kind of have the reputation as a tight player, then you uh, you can get away with some of that stuff. Like that was the whole action Dan thing, I think. Or maybe he was actually just in it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, with Dan Harrington there. But there's definitely several players who have a, a tight image that allows them to get out of line. And what you're talking about is players with wild images that allow them to kind of uh, just print. <laughs> when they're playing tight or when they are like, you know, just getting foals because other people don't want to, you know, deal with their um, kamikaze um, plays. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've definitely seen um, both of those player types uh, and I've been both of those player types <laughs> in various tournaments throughout these bracelet series. So yeah, I'm hoping that I got about, you you did a good job um, on Thinking Poker Daily of convincing me um, to not try to satellite into these bigger events. You and the fact that I did not cash the 1500 I played last night. <laughs> so I'm done with the big events now. I might play one more, but definitely I'm not going to play all those saddies to try to get in. Um, like they got a seven like a 7k buy-in tournament coming up. Like I was going to play the Saturday for that. And then after that conversation with you, I was like, that's just stupid. Like, don't do that. <laughs> so I'm not doing that, but I might, I might try to Saturday in the 2k. Like that's within my 
it's close. It's close to uh, what I should be playing. So I'm going to skip the, for sure, I'm going to skip everything that's like bigger than two or three K. Uh, and there's like three or four of those left. And I'm just going to focus on a couple of 500s and a 1K. So maybe like four or five more events. And then I will be done with this hellscape (laughs) (laughs) for at least six months. And then I'll be back doing it here in the summer. I guess that's eight months from now. Speaking of uh, table selection and playing soft games, uh, after I finish with this, um, with these online bracelet events, I will be... um, headed east for the holidays and after thanksgiving i will be going to cherokee playing the live version of bavada so i'm looking forward to that um i probably won't play on the tournaments there but i'll play i'll play some i'll play the main and it'll be nice to um hopefully play at a table full of people whose names i don't know <laughs> and because you because on on you can look these people up. You play against on WSP.com and just like every other player has a bracelet. And then by the time you get like to the bubble, every player at the table has a bracelet. And that's not going to be the case in Cherokee. Yeah. So uh, very much looking forward to Cherokee and um, hanging out with OMC, our mutual friend. And um, hopefully um, one of us will um, be able to win a live ring. Uh, he got second. Heads up for a ring a couple of years ago. I finally won one online uh, last month, and now I'm going to try to do it live. Fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I guess I should I should mention this also. So the bracelet event that I final table, uh, that one actually had live commentary from um, David Tuckman and Norman Chad. So that was my first time hearing um those two guys uh mention my name and talk about me so that was pretty cool yeah congratulations on that thank you thank you so they they had it they had the live stream over um twitch chat and uh, uh i always make the mistake of making these final tables and then being very active in chat as opposed to focusing focusing at the table but come on man how many opportunities are you gonna get to like, you know, talk to the people who are commentating your final table while you're playing it. So I might have lost a little bit of EV there, but it was worth it. And um, I was basically, um, like they were basically reading my bio sheet that Tugman had put together. And he was, oh, and Carlos is um, co-host of the um, Thinking Poker podcast and uh, with with Andrew Brokers. And I was like, yeah, he's probably asleep. He's usually asleep when I make these final tables. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I was like, this is maybe like the third or fourth big final table I made that you were sleeping for. I was like, I got to start, uh, you know, winning these on the East Coast. <laughs> uh, just just uh, tell me in advance when you're going to win, and then I'll set the alarm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- it was cool having those guys. You know, um, I don't know if they got into. If, if they talked about me living in the Prius, that would have, I'm pretty sure Norm would have come up with some pretty funny jokes about that. But I, I don't know if that came up, but they talked about my coaching. Um, I call my coaching service uh, Mediocre Poker, Mediocre Poker Coaching. Uh, Norm had a joke or two about that. That was pretty fun. 
So yeah, that was that was a fun experience. Yeah, so that was the only thing as far as the online bracelet events that I had. But next up is Cherokee, and then also um, I'll probably go down to Best Bet in Jacksonville, Florida, and maybe play on some of their live streams down there. I'll have to do something to get the hell out of the cold uh, when I'm on the East Coast, because that's the one thing. As much as I'm looking forward to seeing family, I'm not looking forward to rain. I'm not looking forward to cold. So hopefully Florida can save me from that. Uh, Maybe not the rain, but maybe they can save me a bit from the cold. But yeah, that's what's coming up for me between now and the end of the year. Nice. Yeah, I wish I had such exciting uh, poker prospects, but it's still all online for me. Although those have been um, decent options. Well, you know, because we we have the the product together. I had kind of a deep run in in the Venom, and uh, fortunately, America's Card Room seems to just be constantly having these series where like literally as soon as one series ends they're like okay we're stuck because they do them like back to back to back where it's like they have like the um the mini online super series and then the online super series and then the big online super series so that's like already three three (laughs) series back to back and then as soon as that wraps up it feels like they're like okay now the venom now another mini online series now a medium series like it's just it's just (laughs) constant yeah they could just stop saying series and say hey this is our schedule because right. uh, a lot of a lot of sites are doing that now uh uh Bavada's doing the same thing like they even have these um like they'll have like they'll use any occasion for you know a series like oh football season started let's start the football season series mm-hmm. And now the NBA started back so now they're doing the NBA season series and then they'll do like um <laughs> they had something called the, I think it was called Super Saturday, but it was run on Sunday. <laughs> uh, and I think that's because they got, they started running some events in um, Australia. So it was actually Saturday in Australia. I think it was Australia, but we were able to play. I can remember several times over the past couple of months where I played a Super Saturday event on a Sunday. So it could just be a day. <laughs> mad, mad Monday, Mad Monday, Super Saturday, NBA season. I think Monday coming up is Columbus Day, so they're, they're going to run a series with any opportunity. And never mind, it's a rate grab, so they don't give a damn what the uh, the reason for it is. The reason for it is free money. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this is like a thing when when the marketing people get their hands too much on, uh, I, they just kind of can kind of make some some logic that either is just wrong or at least is, is very short sighted. I think kind of see the same thing with WSAP bracelets also, where they're like, oh, people will will play the thing more or like, like historically events that have bracelets are more popular or events that are part of a series are more popular. So let's just put a bracelet on every event. Let's just put a series on every event. And then of course you like dilute the thing. And then at some point, like I mean, it probably works for a little while where people are like, Oh cool. That's my chance to get a bracelet. It's my chance to, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll play the, and it literally on, on ACR, it's like, it is the same tournaments that they have on a daily. Many of the, of the tournaments that are nominally like part of the series are just like tournaments that they would run anyway. Like their $200 Sunday tournament instead of the Sunday special, it's like OSS event number 31, but it's the same, you know, same buy-in and same guarantee and, and all that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's literally just like a, a branding thing. And yeah, I think they do end up sort of like who even knows so many people have bracelets now, like it's, who can even keep track. And, you know, it's not it's not a sign that, that one co-host is better than another because they have a bracelet <laughs> and the other one doesn't or something. That's ridiculous. And a ring, and a ring. And a ring. <laughs> Don't forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's that is a very good point. By by this time, five years from now, it's like 
bracelets will just mean you've cashed something before. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm completely fine with that. <laughs> I just, you know, they do the thing when, uh, like with the Poker News updates where they put the the icon next to your name of like how many bracelets you have. I'm just imagining yeah. in the future, it's like this person with 87 bracelets versus <laughs> this person with 124 bracelets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually use that. When I look through the, the, the updates to try to find myself, I can just scroll through the bracelets now. So it's like a, it's a, it's a, um, like a bookmark for me. <laughs> <laughs> But you, but you're right. In a couple of years, just having one will be like that's how you know your opponent's a fish because <laughs> they only have one bracelet. <laughs> Noob. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I was thinking I was going to mention this earlier, but we just, we just kind of got going, so now we're like 40 minutes in into the episode. But uh, we do actually have a new sponsor for the show, which is a pretty big deal. Um, you know, we, we were sponsored for a long time by Tournament Poker Edge back when. Uh, I was making videos for them. And then, uh, you know, we've had other opportunities. We, we could have been putting ads for, you know, men's uh, personal grooming products on here <laughs> or whatever else, uh, you know, cheesy sunglasses. And we've deliberately resisted doing those kinds of things because uh, we value your time as listeners and your attention as listeners. And we're not trying to just throw uh, snake oil at you or, or sell snake oil to you. So we had not really been like actively pursuing sponsorship opportunities. Right. That's part of why we have the, the Patreon was to support the show in a way that didn't just like fill up, uh, just clog things with like stupid ads. But essentially an opportunity came around that um, it just very well parallels with what the the show is and you know this so essentially gto wizard is, is going to be the uh the sponsor of the show which is um not quite a solver it's like a solver lookup tool so you can um if, if you have a subscription to gto wizard you can look up um literally any flop for a large number of different scenarios and, and they're adding more but you can look at you know different stack sizes cash or mtt different rake structures and in, in cash um with or without limping allowed as part of the strategy uh, and as opposed to a solver where it's going to take i mean hey with a with a like if you're using a, a traditional like a po solver or something uh a you have to like input ranges and things yourself and then b you have to wait for it to actually run you have to use the parameters yourself um often in and this is always my experience using those tools you know you end up kind of simplifying the game tree in the interest of making something that you can run in like a reasonable amount of time so you know, what, what gto wizard has is a lot of um it's it's virtually instantaneous that you can just look at okay what's the solution for playing 40 big blinds uh cut off versus under the gun on uh king seven three rainbow flop like you can you can just look at that and there's not the opportunity to like node lock or some of those other things that you could do because you're looking up a pre-solved thing but um yeah, it's just, it's a very powerful tool. It's something that I've immediately found use in, in being able to work with. And uh, I think it is, is a very nice parallel for, for the show and something that I think, you know, we feel good about supporting and, and recommending to you. And that I think a lot of our listeners will get some benefit from. Um, so GTO Wizard is, is sponsoring the show now. And um, I also am making some content for them. I have an article, I think it'll be up on their blog by the time this airs on... Um, blog.gtowizard.com. So this is a free thing that you can look at even without having a subscription. They have a lot of good articles on there as well. And then there's going to be some going up from me. But the first one that I uh, have on there is about what, where does the value in a bet 
come from, right? Like when when we see like an EV attached to a to a particular bet, thinking about, and then you can you can reverse engineer this to consider whether you should be betting in a given situation. Like, what are the components that go into making a bet? profitable, making it better than not betting. Um, the equity when called and fold equity and anticipating what's going to happen on, on future streets. And so this article it kind of uses GTO Wizard to illustrate some things about that point. And that, again, is, is freely available to everyone at blog.gtowizard.com. So this is a subscription-based product, and part of our deal with them is that uh, we're going to have some free subscriptions that we can give to listeners. So what we're going to be doing is uh, choosing randomly two of our Patreon supporters each episode. We're going to choose two people uh, who will win free subscriptions to GTO Wizard. I think we're going to choose one person from our like uh, our super knit tier, our, our, our top tier of subscribers. And then one person from just the subscriber pool at large. So no matter which tier you're at, you'll have a chance of winning this. And uh, if you're not already a subscriber, you can and should sign up at uh, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And uh, in addition now to getting you access to uh, our daily strategy segments, plus all the ones that we've done in the past, you get access to everything, even if you just sign up now. Um, you get access to everything that we've done, everything that we will continue to do, uh, and you will be entered into these uh drawings for not necessarily weekly, but for every episode that we put out um, to get a free subscription to GTO Wizard. So I think we'll do the first of those next uh, episodes to give people a chance after hearing this now <laughs> to, to sign up <laughs> and get themselves in, in the pool for that. And I look forward to getting some of you all hooked up on GTO Wizard and starting to use it for our own uh, strategy discussions on here. Just to uh, clarify or give a little bit more detail about what these uh, free memberships are going to be, these are going to be a one-month starter membership, and the recipients of the uh, award or the uh, <laughs> the winners of the prize will be able to choose uh, whether they want an MTT Cash or Spin and Go membership. So again, we'll be giving away two of these uh, every episode to Patreon subscribers. One. Uh, specifically chosen from our top tier of subscribers and one chosen from the subscribers at large. And those will be one month free starter GTO wizard memberships, your choice of MTT cash or spin and goes. Um, speaking of strategy discussions, we do actually have a question today. And this actually is probably not one that's going to entail <laughs> using GTO wizard because it's about using non-standard um open raise sizes are really about responding to non-standard open raise sizes. This is a question coming to us from Jonathan, who asks, uh, hey, Carolos and Andrew, I have, a typo <laughs> <here>. <laughs> uh, I have a theory question for you guys. I play in a regular home game uh, with a good player, primarily a cash background, whose standard raise is three and a half to four X. Uh, he opens wide with this amount. For example, he'll regularly open 4x for middle position with 9-7 suited to attempt to steal the blinds, but he could just as well have kings. What adjustments to my ranges should I make for this type of player, and is there a way to exploit this? Uh, I certainly have thoughts, but I've been talking for a long time already. Is there anything you wanted to uh, to say? Um, I want to say that Jonathan is a student of mine, so 
He definitely should have got my name spelled right. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but uh, I've I've talked to um, Jonathan about poker for several hours, so I want to give him an opportunity to hear from you on this, and then I will I will um, chime in. Okay, so I think the first and most important thing is to recognize that you should be responding differently to these raises. Like what you can't do is just look. I mean, if you could, you could go to like Floptimal or something that enables you to see preflop um, GTO Wizard also has preflop ranges on it um, that would enable you to look at you know preflop uh, solved preflop ranges for various situations. But those are assuming a certain raise size. Often they're assuming like a min raise or maybe a three x raise at most. And so if you're dealing with like a four x raise a larger raise the math is different um the and, and probably your opponent's range is different than what the solver is expecting but even if it weren't like even if your opponent were mistakenly like looking at solver ranges but then using a larger raise size still your response will be different because the risk reward ratio is different for you the, the size of the pot is larger the amount that you have to risk to contest the pot is going to be larger um the the Biggest thing to say is just that you should be a little bit tighter when when you're required to risk more relative to what's already in the pot. You should be a little bit tighter, and again, that's true even if you think your opponent's range is exactly the same as what it otherwise would have been. The um, the, the pot odds that you're going to be getting will will be different, and you should be a little bit tighter as a result. This part is, I think, a little less strictly true, but I think is broadly true, which is that you should also be a little bit less aggressive. Like you should be calling a little bit more relative to three betting when their open raise size is this large. And that a, a big part of that is that when we're talking about like pre-flop three betting, if you're in any position other than the big blind, part of what you're doing when you three bet is you are increasing the price for other players to enter behind you. And that's valuable. Even if you have the button, that's valuable. Certainly if you don't have the button, it's extra valuable. So we do, we do tend to see, if you're looking at like solved ranges, we do tend to see more three betting from earlier positions. And that's in part because like, if you're going to enter the pot, like if under the gun raises and you're going to enter the pot from under the gun one, it's pretty bad for you if other players call behind, um, even if they're out of position, you know, like even if the big blind over calls, right? They're taking equity away from you. So denying them the opportunity to do that or making it more expensive for them to do that is generally to Desirable. And if your opponent's initial raise was small, like just a min raise, then if you just call, the button is getting a pretty appealing price to play and the big blind is getting an extremely appealing price to play, especially when there's antis in the pot. So part of what you're accomplishing by three betting is not just generating full equity against the original raiser or pushing an equity advantage against the original raiser. Part of what you're doing is also generating full equity against all those other people behind you. And if the original raise is already like four times the big blind, um, of course, there's still fold equity to be generated by three betting, but there's less of it. Like there are more hands that are going to fold even if you don't three bet. The big blind is not going to be getting nearly as good of a price to call if you if you flat a 4x open as they would if you flatted a 2x open. And consequently, you, you don't need to three bet quite as thinly or you're not as um, incentivized to three bet quite as thinly. So I, I think you know, the, the response... So this is going to be a little bit more folding and a little bit more calling and somewhat less three betting. Um, and this is not not really doing anything exploitative. That's just responding to the math of being required to risk a larger amount to contest the pot. Also, when you do three bet, you want to use a smaller size than you normally would if you do it as a multiple of the open. So if you normally go something like three times the guy's open, but the guy's open is bigger than it 
uh, usually is, then maybe you want to drop that to like two and a half times the open or maybe even just double the open. So in, in terms of like the, the question about, is there a way to exploit this? Um, I mean, the way that I would put it is, I don't know that you, other than the adaptations that I mentioned, which I wouldn't necessarily think of as like exploitative. I think often when people ask, is there a way to exploit something? What they really mean is like, is there a way that I can you know, win these pots more often or, or win a bigger pot from this person or like bluff them a lot or something like that? Essentially, what I would say is that a lot of the way you're benefiting from this is just passive. Like you're not you're not gonna have to do anything in particular to benefit from the fact that your opponent is is making this mistake, particularly in in a tournament with kind of shallow stacks. There are very good reasons to not use four x open race sizes. I think that <laughs> this matters a little bit less in, in in cash games. But when we're talking about like a you know tournament where there might be people with fifteen big blinds or something at, at the table, you want to be able to open hands that are not going to call a shove from those players behind you, right? You want to have the chance to raise a hand to steal the blinds or to you know play heads up against the big blind. Like that's also a pretty decent outcome when you open like this person used the example of nine, seven suited from middle position. Yeah. Stealing the blinds is certainly the best case scenario with that hand, but like min raising getting called by the big blind is, is a pretty okay outcome as well. Uh, what you really don't want to happen is for somebody to, to, to three value. And when you have short stacks behind you, it's, that much more likely they're going to three bet because shoving is such an appealing option for someone sitting on like a 15 or a 20 big blind stack. Uh, and so sometimes you're that person with a 15 or 20 big blind stack. Mm -hmm. And if the person opens for, if, if this other person opens for X and you happen to have a hand that you can shove with, and of course what that is, is going to be dependent on position and whatnot. But like, if you have a hand to shove with, then either they've priced themselves in with a bet, like now they're, they're priced in to call off with nine, seven suited when you have jacks. And even if their call ends up being mathematically correct, it was still a mistake that they put in enough chips to commit themselves to, to calling your 20 big blind <laughs> shove in the first place. Or if they fall, like they're now they're losing four big blinds instead of two when they fold. So a lot of it is just like you're just going to benefit from them using this bigger size in ways that um, it's not that you're doing something different. It's just that when you do the things that you would otherwise do, the reward for it is, is larger than it than it needed to be. Um, there are ways that this can hurt you. Okay? If, if you're the player in the big blind when this person four X's it, uh, they are taking money away from you. They're also they're costing themselves money. They're costing you money, and that money is getting redistributed to other players who haven't acted yet, who maybe will just wake up with aces or you know wake up with, with some other good hand. And this person has put a lot of money in, in the pot. So I mean, there are like it's not strictly good for you. you. You could easily be in a situation. It's probably true if you're in the small blind as well. It's somewhat bad for you that that someone is is doing this. Uh, but more often than not, you're not in the blind. So you you benefit when when you are yet to act and this person is making these big raises uh, if, if you're not in the blinds but if you are in the blinds what it means that there's someone out there making these big raises is you have less opportunity to realize equity from the big blind right? because they're they're making the price so high you're going to be folding your big blind to their raises a lot more often than you otherwise would and those represent missed opportunities for you so again what this person is not that this person is taking money away from you what what they're doing is well, i mean they kind of are but what they're really doing is they're sort of torching equity for themselves they're torching a little bit of your equity and th that equity is flowing towards the players who don't have to do anything in particular other than just you know get dealt decent hands and and play them appropriately right and i like what you said about not having to do anything else to exploit this like these sort of players just exploit themselves yeah so by registering the tournament <laughs> you've exploited <laughs> yes. this guy and that's gonna generally be the case if you're doing a good job of table selecting <laughs> 
Yeah, that's that's a very good way of putting that. I mean, it, it's in theory, like there's no reason you couldn't run a solve that did use these ray sizes. I mean, there's a reason why they typically don't, which is that these are not the ray sizes. Like a good player just isn't going to use these these ray sizes very much. I think it is the case that. Like I, I wouldn't swear that there's never a time when a solver would use a 4x open race size. I, I think it's quite plausible that given the opportunity, a solver would sometimes find an opportunity to like open raise four times the big blind, maybe even at, at shallower stacks. I mean, solvers do some some counterintuitive things sometimes. So I'm not going to say that this it's it's never correct. I think it is it is not correct for this just to be like the standard open race size that you're always going to 4x. But I can imagine in a couple of years, if we have like more powerful preflop solvers and people are routinely running solvers with multiple um multiple preflop raise sizes and um we might start to find that at least the 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 solver strategy is not going to be just pick a single raise size and always use that even i mean that's that's what i advise that's what i do when i'm playing i think for our human brains it's, it's a nice adaptation but i think solvers probably are capable of balancing multiple preflop raise sizes and um and will want to do that i know that that solvers do more open limping than um than than I as a human am accustomed to doing, and in some situations that I would like, even at like thirty big blinds in middle position, I think solvers will sometimes open limp if you give them that opportunity, and that's not something that I ever do unless I'm doing something extremely exploitative. Right, right. So I mean, you, you could run a solve that that has this as an option, even if you did, it's still not really going to tell you the right way to respond to this player who's doing this because they're not using a like solver approved range for forexing they're just like using a wrong range for <laughs> for for forexing so that's it's you know even doing that solve is still not going to tell you the like the optimal way of responding to this person yep um anything else you want to add for um jonathan, jonathan here. um no i think you gave him some pretty good advice here just Stick to your guns. <laughs> you know you you know what to do for the most part. We've talked about what ranges you generally should be playing and how you should be approaching um, these sort of games. And like Andrew said, maybe just shave off the bottom of those ranges just a little bit and just have faith that your default game strategy against this player is going to make money in the long run and you don't have to force it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for writing. And uh Everyone can, um, you can send us hands. I guess one of the best way to get hands to us probably, uh, if you want to write me, uh, Andrew at thinkingpoker.net. If, if you're not one of our Patreon subscribers already, you can submit hands, just email them directly to me. Um, DMing me on Twitter at thinkingpoker is also an option. And if you indicate that you're not a, a Patreon person, then I, I have a separate folder that I use that's just like questions that people have for, for the regular show. And I'll make sure that, you know, if, if, if we, discuss your question, which I certainly can't guarantee. But if we discuss your question, then we'll put it on, on the regular show where you'd be in a position to hear it. Uh, the much more reliable way to have us discuss your questions is to subscribe at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And uh, we discuss, I mean, I, I don't know if we can promise this forever going forwards, but like right now we discuss damn near every question that gets submitted on there. Uh. That's no? not true. Okay, my bad. <laughs> I guess you're, you're doing more behind the scenes uh, yeah. filtering than I realized. Okay. We used to discuss every hand that was sent, but thankfully um, we've had pretty good success with this project. 
to where that's not possible because it's a daily show and there's only 365 days in a year. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and our definition of daily is excluding weekends too. So, <laughs> yeah, we got a hard limit there and we've passed that uh, with our subscriber base. Um, so far, we've been able to discuss every hand that was submitted by um, the um, top and mid-tier subscribers, but the subscribers that are getting three episodes a week, uh, it's very difficult to um, get to those guys these days just because we have so many people at the um, the mid-tier. Ah, so, gotcha. yeah, yeah. So they, they have priority for a reason, and that there's so many of them now that they kind of drown everybody else out. But but those other ones are still in the queue. And the day all of our uh, mid and high tier subscribers kind of take a break, <laughs> we will we, we occasionally um, um, squeeze in um, the five dollar guys, but just not as often as we did when we were starting. Okay, my bad. Uh, so nonetheless, I think your your odds are probably better submitting it on um, on P- Patreon. But certainly, if you uh, get your question to me and, and indicate that you're not a Patreon subscriber, I will put it in the folder for potential discussion on uh, the show here. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe we'll be running it through GTO Wizard in the future. I know you won't, you won't.